Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Man, a uh, little interesting weekend this weekend. I actually have to submit my very first copyright takedown notice on somebody else for posting my audiobook on YouTube. Can you believe that? I couldn't. I, I've just spent the last hour figuring out how to, how to send copyright infringement notices to YouTube. Like, who... <laughs> anyway, that was kind of fun and exciting. More exciting and fun is the fact that um, the podcast that I did this week with Sonny Pereira was absolutely fascinating, I think. I hope you agree with me. Based on the comments and feedback I've been getting today, it sounds like it's going over pretty well. And it's a description of some aspects of Scientology auditing, how it is organized and delivered within Scientology organizations. This is something I've never really talked about before in terms of the detail that we go into in this podcast. And I had Sunny join me because she was a highly trained case supervisor. And we talk extensively in the podcast about the subject of case supervision in Scientology. It's different from psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, any other kind of counseling model that you've seen before. And it makes Scientology that much different and worse from psychotherapy. So anyway, you might want to check that podcast out. And with that being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. RCK. In continuation of the question I asked you last week, you made your point why the IRS should investigate the Church of Scientology to determine if it is still eligible to maintain its tax-exempt status. However, as you and other former Scientologists have made clear, the Church of Scientology terrorizes its opponents. What was also made clear on how the Church of Scientology got its tax-exempt status is that it countersued the IRS, bogged it down with paperwork, and went after the individual IRS employees involved in the case. People like you who publicly criticize Scientology know what you are getting yourselves into. Should the IRS investigate Scientology and the case lands on some poor, unsuspecting IRS agent's desk, what would you tell him or her on what to expect and how to handle Scientology's reaction? All right, great follow-up question here, RCK, because uh, you bring up a good point, and it's um, a necessary one to consider. But let's, let's be, again, realistic about this. No one individual IRS agent is going to be the person who's going to take on the Church of Scientology. It's going to be, you know, committees of people, groups of people within the IRS, just as was done before. When David Miscavige first met with uh, Jeffrey, uh, I forget the guy's name, anyway, the IRS commissioner at the time, back in the early 90s, they set up a, uh, a, a panel, a commission within the IRS to investigate Scientology's uh, grievances and claims. And that was part of that two-year process before they actually got their tax exemption. So I imagine something like that would happen again. Uh, however, So it's not going to be just one poor sod who's going to have to deal with the Church of Scientology. The, the case is far too lengthy. I mean, we're talking about decades of paperwork. We're talking about 
you know, reams of paper. Um, so, so they're not going to dump it on some poor schlup who's just going to be terrorized by Scientology from that point forward. It would be a very, very different situation. Scientology's lawyers would be involved, their tax attorneys, and uh, the IRS's attorneys would be involved. I mean, they're going to they're going to come in real fast on something like that. And um, and what Scientology would start to engage in right away would be endless amounts of appeals and and anything else they could do to enter slows or or. Uh, stops into the process. That's the first thing they're going to try to do because that's not overly antagonistic. It's just using all the loopholes and 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 uh, rules of the system against the pe- the people who are trying to let's say take away Scientology's tax exempt status. Following that would be the whole dirty handed activity of going after IRS officials and things like that. I'm wondering, given the past experience on this, whether Scientology would engage in the same tactics. Probably because they simplistically believe that the cause of whatever previous success you've had is capable of causing it again. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's not true. It depends entirely on the context. In this case, they probably could and would get away with doing uh, countersuits or or individual lawsuits or things like that. But here's the thing. You know, the IRS is part of the government of the United States. So they really only have to put up with that kind of nonsense for so long. There is such a thing as vexatious litigation. There are lawsuits that people can bring against the government and do all the time, as we dis- as you'll find out more about in a future podcast. Uh, I think coming up this next week, uh, covering the topic of sovereign citizens, uh, those are another those are another set of, of people who uh, like to inundate the government with uh, wads and wads of paperwork, uh, different from Scientology, but but interesting uh, in the similarities. Anyway, you'll see that podcast, like I said, probably this week. So, um, so the government would not knowing how Scientology plays and knowing what they do and knowing how they operate because so much more has been exposed to the broad public since 1993 when the IRS first capitulated. So now the IRS is in a much better place to get quickly educated or slowly educated or however they want to go about doing it on all aspects of Scientology. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of data out there now. There wasn't back then. So in some ways, the IRS, um, you know, they had this long protracted battle, but every time Scientology was bringing something new or some new tactic, especially in the late 80s when they really got serious, um, the IRS didn't really see it coming. They didn't predict any of this. They didn't know what to expect. Now they do. So it would be a very different situation then and now. Uh, so those are a few of the things I can put there because it's not a matter of me advising some poor, like I said, some poor schlep in the bowels of the IRS who's now going to deal with the Scientology problem. That's not how that would go down. Were there to be a single individual who I could talk to about this, uh, I would be more than happy to debrief to them, as would many other people. Um, you know, to talk about how Scientology's tactics work and how to circumvent them um, and how to bring things into a court of law so 
as to, you know, bypass a lot of the nonsense and shenanigans that Scientology gets up to. Uh, again, I think if they, if you started looking into uh, playing it, uh, this is one strategy. I am no legal expert, okay, at all. But one thing I could think of to, to, to really go in hard on from the government position is watching for and dealing appropriately with any form of vexatious litigation that Scientology is trying to bring against the IRS or against its individual members. That, I think, could really be a tool they could use. But, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a legal expert on that, so I might be wrong. Um, they would not, I am sure, at this point, put up with Scientology's, individual Scientologists filing 1,200 individual lawsuits against individual IRS agents. They would, they would combine all that stuff and, and turn it into some kind of class action thing and get it dismissed straight away. That kind of thing. I don't know that the IRS was really, this is conjectural on my part, but I don't know that the IRS commissioner really appreciated what he was up against. And I don't think he dealt with it appropriately uh, at all, <laughs> you know. But I don't think he, I think they were really caught off guard. And I think that had a lot to do with, um, you know, all that pressure that was being put on the IRS and the public pressure. That there, was, there were public PR campaigns being run in newspapers. And I mean, there was all kinds of stuff Scientology was doing. Um, knowing that all that is coming would put the IRS in a much better position than they were in last time to be able to head some of that stuff off at the pass. So um, anyway, I think I made that point pretty clearly, and I think that's how that all would go down. So, um, so I think, to be completely blunt with you here, I think your fears about the IRS and how Scientology would somehow you know, engage in some kind of brutal, you know, unfair... Uh, fair gaming and, and warfare against the IRS and the poor IRS is just not prepared for it, not ready for it. That's just not true. That's not how that should be looked at. The IRS's job is to grant tax exemption to religious organizations or charitable organizations uh, as appropriate per the 501c3 points uh, or, you know, the code points. And they should never have granted that to Scientology. And it has uh, used and abused that tax exemption. So it is on the IRS to fix their mistake. Like, you know, I get the sympathy for the IRS folks, but then again, this is the IRS we're talking about. So this isn't like a, a bunch of great guys who, you know, I, I feel a lot of sympathy and understanding for anyway. You know, these are tax collectors we're talking about. And we're asking them to actually just do their job. So anyway, that's my feedback on that. Hope that answered your question. Feel free to fire anything else at me uh, on this topic. Susan Hepler. I've been watching a lot of documentaries on Shelley Miscavige. My question is, given the numerous new properties that the church seems to acquire each year, is it possible that they could have moved her to one of the newer and more secluded properties? And is there any way of finding out which properties the church actually owns through things like tax filings or something like that? Great question, Susan. And yes, it's entirely possible that Shelley Miscavige is not located at the Church of Spiritual Technology up in the Lake Arrowhead Hills and Mountains outside of uh, Los Angeles County. 
that's probably where she is, though. I mean, we have certain eyewitness accounts and things like that, and it's, we're, we're, we're pretty sure that's probably where she's located. But, but, good question to always be aware of. Where else could she be, you know? Where is Carmen Sandiago? Where is Shelley Miscavige, right? She could be in Australia. Uh, that is a place where people get relegated to when they need to be disappeared. But the problem with Shelley Miscavige is she's Shelley Miscavige. So she's not like any other Sea Org member who can be disappeared because anywhere she shows up, if she's Shelley Miscavige, there's going to be questions. There's going to be people going, what? And there's going to be all kinds of fervor, you know, fur, uh, not fervor, but fur. <laughs> <laughs> raised over her presence. So she needs to be put somewhere where that's not going to happen. And that's another reason why CST is such an ideal location. There are the actual vault location sites, Trementia, New Mexico, and, you know, the other places. And um, she could easily be sent to those locations. That would be even more remote in some ways, like the ranch in Creston, California, where Hubbard died. I mean, she, if she was there, no one would know, right? But again, it's kind of the same way no one would know on any of the CST properties. On any other Church of Scientology property, I think there would be issues, like I mentioned. So that wouldn't really be a thing. Yes, there are ways of tracking and finding out other properties the Church of Scientology owns through real estate databases, public records, checks, that kind of thing. But you kind of have to know what you're looking for a little bit because Scientology often purchases properties under uh, assumed names of umbrella corporations that they set up specifically to buy properties so that no one will know that the Church of Scientology is the one purchasing them. They do that all the time. They've done that uh, when they first moved into Clearwater. They've done it more recently in Clearwater. And I'm sure they've done it in other places as well. So, um, so it's a little hard to track with total certainty all the places that Scientology owns property. Um, but there are former members uh, like uh, Paul Burkhart, who has, was the one who actually left from the Atlanta Ward office a few years ago. And he uh, didn't bring it with him, unfortunately. He actually had a spreadsheet that had all the Scientology properties on it. Uh, I really wish he'd brought that out with him. That would have been informative. But um, he's at least seen that work, and he's, he said that, um, that you know, what we know about in terms of all the properties is pretty accurate as to what they have. Uh, at least that's what I understand from what he said. So that's what I can say about all of that, and maybe at some point I'll reach out to Paul and ask him about uh, more about that uh, to see if there's more we don't know about some of those properties out there. Adria Holope. Does Melissa watch every episode of your podcast? What does she think about your podcast? If she does watch every episode, does she give you feedback on every one? Does she ever disagree with your opinions? Have you changed your mind based on her opinions? If she ever changed your mind on an issue, could you give an example of this? <laughs> okay, just a couple questions there, but you know, they all kind of fit under my relationship with Melissa here, so I thought I'd give you folks some, uh, some, some answers about this. Um, Melissa and I have talked about all kinds of things. And she is a very bright person who has definitely changed my mind and opened my eyes in many ways to things I had no idea about. Uh, women's rights were, was something we used to argue about uh, when we first got together. Not like knockdown drag outs, just kind of, you know, we would just have back and forths about it until I think we both realized that we were basically good people who didn't really have it in for the other gender. 
and actually wanted to get along with each other and wanted things to work out. And, and we are both very, very firm believers in uh, real equal rights under the law and social equal rights, because that's where we really lose it. So many of the complaints and problems that people have with equal rights is in social circumstances, not legal circumstances. Although, of course, I, I'm not negating the fact that there are tremendous inequities within our legal system for minorities. And I wouldn't really necessarily say that women are particularly being persecuted by our justice system, but minorities certainly are. Uh, anyway, we talked about that stuff. <laughs> I know I'm going to get comments on all that stuff already. Um, also, she's really brought me around about cats. And, I mean, I'm allergic to cats, and now I'm okay with Seven, uh, the wonder cat, because uh, I'm pretty used to him now. I've been living with him for a couple of years. But when I first, and, and Seven was somebody, was a cat that I did not have a lot of adverse reactions to versus some other cats that just, I can't even be in the same room and my nose and head explodes. So, um, anyway, she's made me kind of like and appreciate cats, which I never did until I met her. Um... She's also opened my eyes quite a bit on um, certain aspects of the LGBT movement and certain uh, priorities and ideas and, uh, and inequalities that exist in that world um, I did not know about. I had sort of dealt with my own homophobia coming out of Scientology, and, um, and I don't really have that problem anymore, um, or prejudice, I should say, or bias, really, is what I sort of flushed out of my system by unlearning all of Hubbard's nonsense about um, homosexuality, perversion, sexuality, etc. Uh, but Melissa's been very, very helpful on that. And finally, the biggest thing that she and I have gone over or talked about at, at, at length and have, and have really gone into some, some educational materials about and some therapeutic materials about is the subject of mental health. Uh, and uh, Melissa's got, you know, her issues, I've got mine. We've been able to assist each other and help each other, educate each other about stuff, and that has been really wonderful, really, really wonderful. And I'd say at this point, my understanding of mental health, what it is, how it works, how it doesn't work, how uh, therapy, what therapy can and can't do, all of that is, I'm in, a, I'm in a much better place to understand all that stuff now than I was six years ago when I first got out of Scientology. So um, Melissa's been, uh, been, a, been a real uh, assistance to me on all of those subjects. Uh, she does not watch all of my podcasts, but she does watch some. And a few of them, I've, I've sat her down and asked her to watch it because I wanted her feedback on, on certain aspects of it or see what she thought. Um, so no, she doesn't always, uh, watch all my podcasts and yeah, we have disagreements about, you know, various opinions we have all the time. Um, but, uh, but I think we have learned how to, or are learning through our process of our marriage, how to communicate, how to sort out problems and issues. And a lot of the education I've done, by the way, on how we think, critical thinking, um, that kind of stuff has helped me a lot in, in my interpersonal relationships with her and other people uh, sorting stuff out. 
not so much online. Online's still been very, very difficult, as I think people, uh, some people, some of my haters will attest. I've, sometimes I, you know, I'm, I still need uh, need to work on the, the online uh, interactions with some people. Um, but uh, but even that, I'm still, you know, trying to trying to do better on that. So uh, that's that's my answer to that question. T. Feeney. I've seen stories of Sea Org members using a medical appointment as an excuse to get off the base and escape. Given that Hubbard's taught that you pull in your own injuries and illnesses, coupled with his teaching that pretty much anything can be fixed with an assist, such as a touch assist or nerve assist, how is it that members are allowed to seek medical attention at all? Well, this is an interesting question, and by the way you worded it, I think there's been some misunderstanding about how medicine and the relationship between Scientology and doctors works. I've discussed this in the past on this show, but let's go ahead and dive into it again because, you know, 200 episodes is a lot to go through to get an answer uh, on some things. On this particular issue, um, Scientology is not, doesn't treat doctors and medicine as like, you know, demons or something to stay away from. Scientology fully appreciates medical services and Scientologists take advantage of medical services all the time. Uh, if you break a bone, if you, you know, get some kind of like serious illness or, you know, pneumonia or bronchitis or something like that, uh, you know, much less a, a serious, serious contagious disease, you are expected to go to the hospital or go to a doctor and get it sorted out. Scientologists have a very heavy bias towards natural alternative therapies, um, which I don't, I, I don't like the idea of alternative therapy or alternative medicine. I just think it's medicine. I mean, if it's, it either works or it doesn't. Um, but uh, they, so they'll, they'll tend in that direction. But, you know, if a Scientologist has a, has a let's say, a 12-year-old, and the 12-year-old falls out of a tree or has a bike accident, breaks his arm, he's going to urgent care. He's going to the hospital immediately. They're not going to try to you know, there are some times, actually, actually, I should say, there have been times where assists have been used in excess to try to solve problems that a doctor really does need to solve. I, I don't want to put out there that that's never happened or that there aren't some Scientologists who do have real issues with going to see a doctor, won't do it and refuse any sort of medical attention of any kind and try to solve it only with Scientology procedures. But, but that is somebody being overly dogmatic in Scientology. Not all Scientologists are like that. In fact, I would say a minority of Scientologists are that extreme about it. Um, when it comes to any kind of mental health care, though, can forget it. No Scientologist is going to be at all interested in talking with a psychologist or a psychiatrist in any situation under any circumstances. Uh, they will, it will always be a forced issue if a Scientologist is having to see a psychologist, let's say through a court order, let's say there's a custody issue with divorcing parents and one of them is a Scientologist and the other one isn't. The Scientologist who has to go see the court-appointed, you know, psychiatrist or psychologist to, you know, get evaluated for parental control, let's say, they're going to hate that. But they will do it. <laughs> but they're going to hate it. They're not going to give it any credence or importance and think it's all just a bunch of nonsense. When it comes to medical doctors for physical problems, that's a different issue, though. 
it depends on the individual Scientologist you're talking to as to how far they're going to take the solve it with Scientology thing. Um, I have seen auditing, not assists, but auditing used in an attempt to cure cancer, leukemia, other serious medical issues. But those people who had cancer or leukemia were also seeing doctors and were getting chemotherapy or were getting whatever standard treatment they need for that illness. So I've seen all ends of this. It's, a, it's, it's more of a spectrum kind of thing than it is an absolute dogmatic black and white, this is how it always is in Scientology. It's, it's nuanced. It's, it's more layered than that. It depends on the person's back experience also before Scientology. My mom, for example, is a registered pediatrician, pediatric nurse. All my through my childhood, my mom was treating little kids and babies and stuff in the hospital. That's where she worked. And she was very much a proponent of medical care. So while I was growing up, yeah, I never broke any bones. So I never had to go to the hospital for any of that. But if I had, you know, problems with my throat, I had my tonsils removed. If I had problems with my eyes, I went to the eye doctor, I got glasses. If I had a cavity, I went to the dentist, I got it filled. So my mom certainly believed in medicine. And in fact, she's even said to this day that she never really bought into Hubbard's nonsense about psychiatry because as a medical professional, she knew that there was some good with going on with psychology and psychiatry. And she thought Hubbard was a bit extreme about it. Um, in the world of Scientology, that would have made her a little bit of, a, of an outcast on that issue, so she never talked about it, right? So she, you know, she kind of flew under the radar on that particular issue. It wasn't really that big of a deal. They still took her money. They still put her in session. They still tried to get her up the bridge. So, um, so it really depends a lot on who you're dealing with in Scientology as to whether they're going to be... Um, you know, absolutely, you know, no medicine care, no medical care of any kind, or are we going to have a little bit, or are we going to have a lot? You know, it's kind of up in the air. I hope that kind of makes it clear. I know it's a little clear as mud because it's so variable. It kind of changes. Hubbard's issues and, and bulletins on it, which I have quoted before in earlier episodes, pretty clearly state that if you have a serious medical condition, you need to go see a doctor. Um, the issues that tell the case supervisors what to do say if a person's not moving forward in their auditing, if they are experiencing a lot of difficulties, uh, if, they, um, if there's other symptoms, send them to a doctor. Have them get a full medical checkup. Maybe there's something going on with their body that is preventing them from being able to do their auditing. So, you know, that, that's Hubbard's advice on it. So it's, so it's there to... You know, you can interpret his materials as saying, go to the hospital. You can also interpret his materials as saying, don't. That's the contradictory nature of Scientology. There's an HCOB, a bulletin that Hubbard wrote that's called, I think it's called Solve It With Scientology, where he says, if somebody's got some medical thing, what do you do and send them to the doctor? Get them in session. So, you know, it kind of depends, like, as that's why I said, it depends on who you're talking to, what issues from Hubbard they're using to rationalize their position, you know, that kind of thing. So that's, I, I you know, I, I wish I had a, a, a more specific and, and uh, concise answer for you. I'm kind of rambling a bit here, but that's what I can tell you about that topic. Silence. Do Scientologists believe that we all have different amounts of theta, soul quantity, 
and the more theta you have, the more successful you are. Do you believe that, or is it just a gimmick? Okay, theta, as a spiritual quantity, is measurable, apparently, in some way in Scientology, and the more theta you have, the more powerful, yes, you are supposed to be. In fact, there's a ratio. It's the theta-n-theta ratio, okay? So theta is your spiritual essence. N-theta is interbulated theta. It's like, it's, it's, it's more like matter, energy, space, and time. You know, it's interacted with matter, energy, space, and time, and somehow got all messed up. See, the thing about theta that really bugs me is it's supposed to be this quantifiable, you know, measurable thing that yet it does not exist in the physical universe. It, it does not have any wavelength or location in space or time. It doesn't have any weight. It doesn't have anything. It's a static. So how we talk about this in terms of quantity, it's a, it's a very weird thing to me. I've never been able to get my head around this since leaving Scientology as to how this actually makes sense. When I was in Scientology, it only quasi-made sense, and I didn't really think about it too much, and I've been thinking about it a lot since I left. So now I see that it really is just, it just doesn't really make any, any sense at all. There's a nothingness that's a somethingness that we can measure and quantify, and by having more of this nothingness, you're a better person than somebody who doesn't have as much of it. I mean, how does that make any sense, you know? Anyway, this is what Hubbard says, though, and he says that in auditing, all auditing of any kind, you are releasing n theta and converting it into theta, converting it back into its native state. And eventually, through all the auditing you do in Scientology, you're supposed to convert all of the n theta that you're carrying around with you back into theta. There's an idea in Scientology that there are big beings, those capitalized big beings, right? And Hubbard talks about these things, and he says that, um, so, like, he doesn't talk a lot about it, though. There's only, like, two places I can remember where he refers to this. So you get this idea from him that there are some people who are endowed with a lot more theta than others. He also said that, too. He said theta endowment is variable from one person to another, but everybody would improve or be in a better circumstance if their n theta was converted back into theta. So that's kind of a very fundamental theory of Scientology uh, or bedrock belief of Scientology. It's really also the thing that you have to take on faith uh, in Scientology because there is zero evidence. There is no proof of any kind that theta or thetans exist. You have to simply take it on faith and then once you've accepted that reality, it's sort of like accepting Jesus into your heart. You view the entire world through this different lens now that you think Jesus has saved you or that theta is a thing. I mean, both of these things are things you take on faith. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, you can't find any actual evidence of anything that, that, that makes it super, super abundantly um, obvious that there is no other way to explain this phenomena. It has to be theta. You know, that doesn't exist. So, um, so that's why I think it's very, very open to criticism and, and questioning. And there you go. <laughs> it is time for Flash Answers. Bill, son of Tom. Chris, if you could save the life of only one current celebrity Scientologist, then who would you save? I would save Beck. 
Okay, well, first off, I don't have ill will or bear, you know, want to want to want to harm or see any of the Scientology celebrities uh, die or have bad things happen to them or anything, anything like that. I just don't. I, I just that's not how I look at it. Um, I, you know, I guess in answering the question, I get that it's a little tongue in cheek. So I'm like, all right, I, I guess John Travolta. I mean, I know him. He's I met him at least. I should say I don't know him, but I met him. He's he's truly a nice guy. Um, at least from my experience with him, and I've never seen or heard of instances of him uh, engaging in any kind of real overt abuse of any uh, Scientologist or non-Scientologist for that matter. Um, so I guess that's what I would say to that, but, you know, I mean, yeah. Johnny V. Val. People regularly ask if certain people are true believers. And after your interview with the gentleman from the Church of Spiritual Technology, it seems there are several types of true believers. Some believe in the tech or that they're helping people or policy believers. Do you think that this happens to many Scientologists over time? Getting in to help people, then they buy into the tech, then become policy believers. Is there this debate in the Church of Scientology community or is it considered part of the Kool-Aid glass? Um, it's interesting. This is no part of what is talked about within the world of Scientology. No one ever goes here with any of this. Within the world of Scientology, it's expected that you keep Scientology working. There's a policy letter called Keeping Scientology Working. You are expected to follow it to the letter. Um, so you are expected, I guess, what I'm saying with that is you are expected to be a policy believer, a tech believer, and somebody who's helping people and somebody who's saving the planet. All of those things are what makes a Scientologist. So that's why the, the, the question's interesting because it's not like there's, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, 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 maybe I need to talk to more former Scientologists or something about the nature of their belief. My conversation with Dylan was kind of interesting that we ended up going where we went, but not one person has ever gone where Dylan went before with me when I've asked that question or talked about David Miscavige really being a true believer or not. When I was in Scientology, I was a true believer. I believed in the tech, I believed in the policy, I believed in Scientology overall. The whole package was something I accepted, and that's pretty much how it's supposed to be in Scientology. When I talk about keeping Scientology working, I mean you're supposed to accept all of it. Um, so if you ask Scientologists about their belief or the nature of their belief, they're going to tell you it's all true. And I, and I believe all of it. Hubbard was nailed it, and it was all really good. Um, rarely will you see a Scientologist saying something different from that. It happens, but it's rare. Um, and so as far as, you know, uh, part of the Kool-Aid package, yeah, I think it's all part of the Kool-Aid package. Logamug. What type of Magic the Gathering decks do you and, and your wife play? <laughs> I have only recently gotten into playing Magic. My wife showed me how to play it. I'm kind of an aggro deck guy. I like hard-hitting, you know, red and black decks uh, for the most part. I enjoy Magic when it's played on a fairly even playing field, and I find that the nature of the game is such that it actually promotes um, being underhanded and, a, and kind of a dirty player, and I don't really like that very much, especially when I'm on the receiving end of it. So that's kind of cut into my enjoyment of the game a bit. But, um, but as far as the mechanics of the game or playing the game with friends or just having a friendly good time with it, I, I, I really have a, I have a fun time with that. And uh, yeah, mostly red and black decks. 
And, uh, oh, and I really like uh, Planeswalkers, uh, Planeswalker decks, uh, especially um, Vraska, Chandra, and um, this Minotaur named Angrath uh, with his pirate crew. I had a lot of success with that deck. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching. I appreciate your viewership. I appreciate even more the sponsorship of those who are signing up on Patreon. I'll need to do a shout-out next time of those who have recently joined up because there have been a few. And I really, really appreciate each and every one of you. I am also, uh, you're going to hear more about this soon, I hope, but I am uh, also revi revising and reworking my Teespring merch store, uh, which is directly connected to my YouTube account, so you can see below all of my videos samples of merchandise that I am selling, and I will be posting more and more of that uh, as I get it uploaded into the Teespring store. The Everything I've ever made or had out there available for you for merch is also available at my Spreadshirt store. Link is below. Okay, guys, thanks for coming around, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.